Today on Peace Talks Radio, three perspectives about raising boys and specifically how to steer them away from violent paths. Men commit approximately 90% of murder. And over the past 30 years, 61 of the last 62 mass shootings have been committed by men. We'll get the brain science of the equation from Dr. Lise Elliott of the Chicago Medical School. Most of these individual differences in things like violence are much more due to nurture than they are to nature. Also, Dr. Victor Lecherva, author of the book Masculine Wisdom. How can we forge a healthier version of what it means to be male? and then model that for the young men that we encounter. And Dr. Joseph Marshall, author of the book Street Soldiers. He's been working with San Francisco youth since 1982. The deprogramming of this thought process that they think is necessary for survival that's actually imperiling their life or their freedom. And he really didn't understand why he was coming back and forth to jail all the time. He just thought he had bad luck. Today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or exploring how we can all reduce conflict and achieve more peace with each other in our families, workplaces, schools, nation, or our world, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with Suzanne Kreider as we present the first of two programs that will explore the special challenges of raising boys into becoming young men who don't turn to violence and crime and sexual domination. Over and over again, we hear experts trying to explain violence in America by speculating about everything from guns and drugs and video games to dysfunctional families and even lead paint. But we hear very little, if anything, about why it is that girls and women also live in a culture saturated with guns and media violence, also suffer from mental illness, also come from dysfunctional families and have substance abuse problems, also live in houses with lead paint, yet don't commit anywhere near the amount of violence boys and men do. That's a clip from the Jackson Katz documentary called Tough Guys 2. Guys spelled G-U-I-S-E. The vast majority of this violence is committed by men, young men, and boys. The statistics tell the story. 86% of armed robberies are committed by men. 77% of aggravated assaults are committed by men. 87% of stalkers are men. 86% of domestic violence incidents resulting in physical injury are perpetrated by men. 99% of rapes are committed by men. Men commit approximately 90% of murder. And over the past 30 years, 61 of the last 62 mass shootings have been committed by men. If you want to see a compelling presentation of the problem of the violence perpetrated by men and the many contributors to the culture of violence in the United States, Either one of his Tough Guys films are available from the Media Education Foundation. Here's the trailer to Tough Guys 2, which you can link to from our website, peacetalksradio.com. Just joining us, two young men apparently dressed in long black trench coats opened fire at a high school just outside of Denver in Littleton, Colorado. When it comes to violence, it's almost like there are two Americas. It's horrific. I can't even put it, you can't put it into words. There's the America that recoils in horror whenever a brutal mass shooting erupts onto our television screens, shocked by the level of destruction and suffering that just a few individuals are capable of visiting upon so many innocent people. Police say that the gunman opened fire in a theater during a showing of that latest Batman movie, The Dark Knight Rises. And then there's the America that can't seem to get enough of violence as a form of entertainment and ritual, a seemingly endless appetite for ever-intensifying spectacles of all-out brutality and carnage. The question is what sort of relationship, if any, these two Americas have to one another. And if we're serious about answering that question, we need to stop chasing symptoms and take a good look at a truth that's been hiding in plain sight all along. 
that when we talk about violence in America, whether it's real or imaginary, we're almost always talking about violent masculinity. During the next two Peace Talks Radio episodes, we've chosen to accept the Jackson Cats challenge ourselves in a way, to not look at just the symptoms and multiple sources contributing to the culture of violence, but looking upstream to learn what parents and the community can do to understand why some boys and men are drawn to violent themes and sometimes turn violent themselves, and towards sometimes confused takes on gender and sexual roles, becoming misogynistic, domineering, and sometimes violent in their own intimate relationships. Our guests include a former educator in San Francisco who left teaching behind to study and try to end youth violence. Dr. Joseph Marshall runs the Omega Boys Club Street Soldiers program there. Street Soldiers is the name of one of his books on the subject. Also, we'll hear from Dr. Victor Lecherva, co-founder of the New Mexico Men's Wellness and author of the book Masculine Wisdom. But first, our Suzanne Kreider talks with Dr. Lise Elliott of the Chicago Medical School about boys and men's brains and their hormones. She's the author of the book Pink Brain, Blue Brain, How Small Differences Grow into Troublesome Gaps and What We Can Do About It. My question is, if males commit most of the violence in the U.S., how much of this violence can be attributed to boys' brains? Well, that's an interesting question. And, you know, if you look at who's committing the murders uh, or the violence, it's not boys. You asked me about boys' brains. It's going to be adult males who are committing most of the violence. So how do we get from a boy's brain to an adult male brain is really the question that I'm interested in. I set out early in my research to find out what's the difference between male brains and female brains and have come up really kind of frustrated. Uh, There aren't gross differences. I teach medical students brain anatomy, and and we pull uh, brains out of a bucket, you cannot tell if it's a, a human male or a human female's brain. Um, we know men have larger brains than women, but they also have larger bodies and kidneys and hearts and so on. So that certainly isn't explaining anything about violence. What I'm hearing you say is the boys start out as boys, but they become men. So is there something about boys' brains that make them violent men? So you know, all behavior is committed by our brain. So obviously, if two people behave in a different way, it's because there's something different about their brain. But the best evidence I can tell you is that most of these individual differences in things like violence are much more due to nurture than they are to nature. Yes, men commit more violent crimes than women, but most men are not violent. Um, I read a statistic when I was researching my book, uh, Pink Brain, Blue Brain, that um, even in World War II, where you had massive conscription of men, um, very few of them were natural-born killers. They have to be trained to be violent. Uh, Most people, male or female, are not uh, inclined to kill another human being. So I think that most children start out um, peace-loving. Yes, they're selfish. Yes, they're aggressive. Boys and girls both hit, bite, and kick a lot when they're toddlers. And much of what they learn growing up is what we call civilization, civilizing 
our children. Um, and I think girls simply learn that lesson more effectively than boys. One, because they see fewer role models of female aggression. Two, because they're they end up being smaller and less strong, and so they're less physically threatening. Um, but also, boys have this conflicting message when they're growing up. Yes, we want them to be gentlemen. Yes, we want them to use their words and love thy neighbor. But at the same time, you know, turn on the TV. What is rewarded in the male universe? It is precisely aggression and victory and physical violence that is... Um, uh, getting, giving males status in a way that it doesn't give female status. Dr. Lucera, in your book, Masculinism, you wrote, we've received enormously destructive programming about what maleness is all about. Where did the programming come from? Well, the programming came uh, certainly from the people who raised us in our immediate environment. Um, and from our families, we go back to those to the to those circles again. It's the family, the community, and the larger culture. Uh, if if you witness thousands and thousands of of examples of people resolving conflict by using violence in the media, clearly that's going to have an effect on your perception of what men do when they have to deal with conflict. If you experience a father whose anger is out of control, that's clearly going to have uh, an effect on your perception of how men deal with their emotions, how men treat women, and so on and so forth. So I think the where the conditioning comes from is less important than what it is that we need to do to try and shift it. And one of the things that I've been involved with for 30 years now of New Mexico Men's Wellness, uh, attempts to bring men together so that they can share with each other through exercises and workshops and sometimes just campouts. Um, how can we forge a healthier version of what it means to be male? And then try and model that for the young men that we encounter everywhere. But what about the shooters like Newtown and Santa Barbara, Columbine? What's your theory on why those happen? Well, I, I had, again, the, the privilege to go up and consult after the Columbine shootings with, uh, with one of the spiritual communities up there. They, they wanted some help in terms of processing it. The bad news is that I don't think we'll ever get to a place where we will prevent such tragedies from occurring. The good news is that we can make progress and have been making progress on identifying young people who are alienated. There's been a lot of work in the last decade or so on the whole issue of bullying in schools, and that's all consciousness progress. Um, I don't believe that as long as young people have regular access to firearms, and young people experience difficulties that they don't get appropriate support for from mental health systems, from family and community, that we're ever going to eliminate completely these tragedies. Um, I think that the most important thing to do, for example, is if you're a gun owner, make sure that your guns are properly secured so young people don't have unsupervised access to them. That's being part of the solution. If you notice that there's a kid at school 
because you're taking your kids to school every day or whatever, who always seems ostracized, left out, find a way to try and include them or talk to your kids about reaching out to them in some way, or if you're concerned enough, uh, talk to the, to, your, to the teachers about what your perception is. But I mean, is, th those are, those are it, ways of trying to be part of the solution. Isn't that kind of being proscriptive, like saying, well, you should not be alienated? That's like a, uh, it's like a judgment. Maybe some people want to be alone. Maybe some people are introverted and like to be quiet. Well, that's a, that's a good point. The, the, the point is, the, the larger perspective is that we know that there are certain warning signs in terms of people acting out in ways that are destructive to themselves or others. And most of us, again, as part of our busyness, tend to ignore those things. I mean, how many times have people said, oh, well, I thought he was acting a little weird, and gee, it was kind of strange. He was giving away all of his stuff. And then two weeks later, uh, we have a, a suicide that's potentially preventable. What concerns you most about youth suicide? What concerns me the most about youth suicide is the my perception that there's a lot of preventable pain and suffering there for the families, the impact on, on peers, on siblings. Uh, when I was doing a lot of work in the schools, you would go in a classroom of high schoolers and ask them, how many of you have lost someone close to you within the last year? And I was astounded when I first started asking that very simple question at how 75% of the kids would raise their hand. A, a cousin lost in a car crash or someone uh, dying of a suicide. So I think that uh, suicide is a little bit of a reflection back to us about what we're not doing right in society. If somehow we're not allowing young people to find a sense of purpose and meaning, or we're allowing them to just drift off in their alienation. I agree with what you said before, that teenagers, to a certain extent, uh, isolating themselves, defining is part of defining themselves. Cutting themselves off from other is part of defining themselves. But when that alienation just sort of gets to drift away and they don't feel connected to anything, to themselves, to something they love, to their family, uh, to a vision for themselves of the future, that's, that's the, uh, the essence of it has to do with connection and disconnection. Dr. Marshall, tell me a story about the Omega Boys Club and what you've done that's really worked. I was a uh, former teacher and educator, administrator here in San Francisco for years and figured if my kids could survive my rigorous, <laughs> you know, instruction that everything would, would turn out fine because I was a very demanding instructor. And despite the fact that the kids did very well with me, when they were in the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, uh, unfortunately, something seemed to happen to them uh, when they w when they got away from me, and I literally ended up going to the funerals of my former students who were killed in some sort of drug or gang-related violence. Um, so, I felt that the best thing to do was to keep them with me. Uh, you know, when you when you're a teacher and the kids move on, you never see them again unless you bump into them at the shopping mall some years later. But I felt that uh, I needed to, to have a continued presence in their lives, so I started this organization now almost 27 years ago, actually more than 27 years ago. Um, and I told them very simply, I want to help you stay out of trouble. I want to help keep you, and we call it alive and free, alive and free. 
uh, and educated because I believe in education. And uh, I said, you know, would you like to be part of something like that? No sports. Uh, you can get that at the, you know, local boys and girls clubs or at the YMCA. Uh, I want to talk about the serious issues that you're not talking to anybody else about that's imperiling your life and your freedom. And so I began to have conversations with young people. I mean, a lot of the young people I work with don't have uh, what I had, which were, you know, an intact family, great parents who provided that kind of guidance. And so I be literally became their parent, in this case, their father, and began the process of undoing all of that programming that was getting them, you know, put in prison or six feet under in, in, in a grave. Uh, I also made a commitment that if they would stick with this, uh, they could pick the college when they graduated from high school and I'd find the money, which wasn't a very smart thing to say because I didn't have any money. But, uh, you know, the little, little by little, and, you know, as people pitched in to help, uh, my young men and women began to graduate from, uh, go, to, go to college and graduate. Now I've got almost 200 college graduates, 50 of whom have college degrees. But the big thing is keeping them alive and free so that can happen. So I came up with what I call the alive and free prescription, a guaranteed way in a world full of violence to keep them alive and free. And that's pretty much what I give the young people. Dr. Marshall, tell us the most important part of that prescription. First, I have to change the way they think. I have to change the way they think. Um, most youth programs are what I call opportunity and good intention programs. They want to give young people an opportunity. Uh, and that's the way I actually operated when I first thought. Uh, I, I love helping young people. They say they want a job. They say they want an opportunity. I don't do jobs. I do education. My uh, moment of enlightenment, <laughs> my turning point came when I had this young man uh, who was a former gang member. I asked him what he wanted to do because it took a lot of courage to get out of the gang. He said he wanted to go to college. I prepared him academically. I gave him a huge scholarship, <laughs> and he went to college and sold drugs on the college campus. So that was a, a, a real eye-opener for me. I'd given him what he wanted, which was an opportunity. Uh, he had the good intention to succeed. He really did. But uh, I hadn't changed the way he thought inside. I hadn't changed his insides. I just uh, He had a thought process, and he took that thought process with him wherever he went. Um, I, I met a young man. Let me give you another example. I met a young man. Uh, when I was speaking in jail, and I do a lot of work inside uh, juvenile institutions, and I said, uh, how many times have you been to jail? He said, 18. <laughs> I said, what did you say when you got out the first time? I'm never coming back. I said, what happened? I said, what would it take for you not to come back? I need a job. So he went out and got a job, and I went back. He was back in jail. I said, what happened? And he said, well, yeah, I got a job, but I still got caught up. And, and then I looked at him, and I said, here's the problem. Uh, you're going to jail, but you're just doing time. You're not changing. You're not changing the way you think. Uh, when you get out of here and go back, you still think the same way. So I have to begin to change their thought process. And their thought process is the beginning. Of the, it's the deprogramming of this thought process that they think is necessary for survival that's actually imperiling their life or their freedom. And he really didn't understand why he was coming back and forth to jail all the time. He just thought he had bad luck. No. He still believed in not being a punk, getting his respect, getting his money on, uh, you know, doing what he had to do. All that was part of his thinking process. 
And until his thinking process changed, he was going to, you know, he'd be in and out of jail, and eventually he'd be there. He'd be the, he would never get out of jail again. How do you get to the thinking process to thinking all the time? How do you spend that much time with them? Oh, we can have conversations. Again, it all begins with do you want to stay alive and free? So they've been told if you, if, you, if, if you do certain things, you'll survive. So they believe they've acquired a survival skill. Well, they haven't acquired a survival skill. It's misnamed. They've acquired a way to die and go to prison, a death and incarceration skill. That's what they've learned. But somebody has told them that this is a way to survive. And so I have to, that's the first thing I, I show them. Well, you're not surviving. So obviously, and I, I, I've had scenarios where uh, uh, guys have been taught not to snitch. Don't, you know, and, you know, they just get programmed a certain way. All I do is talk about that programming. We begin to have conversations. But, but I know what I'm up against. I'm up against something that it's almost like a virus in a computer. You know, a computer is a great instrument, but the worst thing you can get is a virus. And then once it gets that virus, it can't do anything well at all, good at all. In fact, you get warned about this virus being passed to, other, <laughs> to another computer. Well, the young people are like this. They get this thinking in their head. It's, 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 it's like a virus, and I'm the one who comes in and, you know, deprograms this thinking. I mean, when, when your computer gets a virus, you call somebody in to get rid of the virus. In our case, what we do is we send young people to jail, and they're there with other people, other infected people. So they never really get this thing out of them. And that's, I know that's the way they think, and since... Uh, knowing something is pretty easy. You go in and you start dealing directly with it, and then you show them how the way they think leads to risk-taking behaviors, carrying a gun, selling drugs, all of those things that they think are necessary for survival. And so it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm just like a medical doctor in that sense. Uh, I know the medicine in, is, is, is the right medicine to take. Dr. Joseph Marshall, author of Street Soldiers and founder of the Omega Boys Club in San Francisco, helping to end youth violence. More with Dr. Marshall and our other guests talking about how to raise young boys away from committing violent acts or turning to violence as young men. When Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, with all of our episodes dating back to 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. You'll find something useful and interesting there for sure if you visit peacetalksradio.com. 
I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider, and today we're talking with a panel who have all dealt closely with the societal problem of males committing almost all of the violence in our world. We're asking them to ponder what more can we do to help steer young boys from violent futures. Our guests are Dr. Joseph Marshall, who we heard from right before the break. He's the founder and director of the Omega Boys Club, working with youngsters in San Francisco, and taking his prescription for living alive and free all around the world since the 1980s. His work is online at stayaliveandfree.org. That's stayaliveandfree.org. We're also hearing from Dr. Victor Lacherva, who's the co-founder of the New Mexico Men's Wellness Group, and whose new book, Masculine Wisdom, can be found online at myheartsongs.org. That's myheartsongs.org. Now back to Suzanne Kreider's conversation with Dr. Lise Elliott of the Chicago Medical School and author of the book Pink Brain, Blue Brain, How Small Differences Grow into Troublesome Gaps and What We Can Do About It. Let's talk about aggression because in your book, Dr. Elliott, Pink Brain, Blue Brain, you write that skills like aggression, empathy, risk-taking, and even competitiveness are heavily shaped by learning. So tell me, at what age are those skills shaped? Because really, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? That's right. And every type of learning, the earlier you start, the more effective it is. I always come back to the example of language. Each of us speaks at least one language fluently, and it's the language you were exposed to from birth. You don't remember when you first learned English. Um, by the time you were three, it felt it feels innate, right? It feels like we've been speaking this language forever. Uh, but of course it was learned. It was learned by the language you were immersed in. And so we need whatever um, the interpersonal values we're trying to instill in children, we need to start from the get-go. And I think most children do have that experience. I mean, there certainly are abused children, and um, we're really challenged with overcoming difficulties that began in early childhood. But most children, you know, are raised by one or two loving parents, and, and they're exposed to examples of, of sensitivity and, and loving and caregiving, I think we need to be more vigilant when they leave the home. That's where things start getting dicey. And certainly the media that they're exposed to present all kinds of models of, of aggression and antisocial behavior that uh, may be working against the models we're trying to set at home. If you believe it's more nurture than nature, how do you define nurture and nature? So nature um, could pretty much be boiled down to genes and hormones um, when you're talking about gender differences. Males and females have all the same chromosomes. Um, 45 of our 46 chromosomes are identical, and it's just the last chromosome, the sex chromosome, X or Y, that differs between males and females. So genetically, we're actually not very different. Um, hormonally uh, is a different story. Both males and females have all the same hormones, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, but we have different quantities of those. Uh, males have something like 10 to 20 times higher testosterone levels. And that has been linked um, tangentially to aggression. It's, it's interesting. It's not a, 
uh, a direct relationship. You know, if you give an injection of testosterone, it doesn't turn somebody into a raging bull. But we do know that animals of all species, uh, this, this exposure to prenatal testosterone does change behavior. It does make uh, boys a little bit more physically active and more prone to physical aggression. But it's a, it's a small statistical effect. It is not a black and white male-female difference. When you say it changes the behavior, what behavior are you talking about? So probably the most familiar behavior in children is what we call rough-and-tumble play. Uh, If you've ever seen two boys um, wrestling, that's a good reflection of of, uh, this rough-and-tumble play. I I have a couple of sons, and um, I remember taking them to their older sister's soccer game one time, and they spent the entire hour rolling down the hill and wrestling, and somebody called them a couple of bear cubs, which Hmm. is not really that different. Um, Most mammals uh, do engage in this kind of play. It's physical play. It looks aggressive, but usually it's actually a way for children to learn kind of the limits of another person's tolerance. And there's, there's actually a lot of social learning that takes place. If we're teaching girls to suppress or control their aggression, their risk-taking, what can we do in our culture to teach boys to do that more? The adage about using your words is is actually a good one. Uh, Children need to be reminded of that, that if they're frustrated or angry, they're much better off um, expressing those feelings through words than through physical deeds. Um, I I admit it's a fine line with boys because I don't believe in suppressing rough-and-tumble play. I don't believe um, that you know, we boys need to be trained to keep their hands off each other all the time in school. I mean, children are very naturally touchy and feely and affectionate. And, um, and so I think teachers and parents need to be sensitive to this need to have physical contact with your friends, uh, but just making sure it doesn't cross the line. So, you know, that's been, I think, why sports have have been so important in in civilization. Um, they create an outlet for that natural physicality and aggression um, that is uh, safe and is valued and is actually good for children's development, boys and girls. What if kids are not involved in sports? What does the research recommend if a kid is not involved in something like sports? Well, I'd like to see more children physically active, even if they're not involved in organized sports. I think part of the problem in the U.S. is that sports has become a very specialized, very expensive endeavor. And so we have more and more kids that aren't moving at all. And then this small handful of elite athletes that are getting all this amazing exercise. Um, So there are some, you know, um, Mrs. Obama's movement to and uh, the Pro Football League, I think, actually to get kids moving, that 60 minutes a day campaign is a really good idea. Kids need more trips to the park. They need a lot more recess in school. Um, it's crazy to expect children to sit still for three, four hours in a classroom without having a, 
a good opportunity to run around and, you know, get the sillies out and recharge their brains for, for more learning. So we've deprived children of these natural physical opportunities. Uh, we've deprived children of nature. Just being outside is a great opportunity to be more physically active. It sort of happens automatically. Climbing trees. I think, you know, we've gotten so worried about injuries and accidents that kids just hear a lot of no when it comes to physicality, um, when they need to burn those calories and they need to, to burn off that energy in order to not only learn better, but to get along better with each other. I don't know if I'm making this up, but it seems like a lot of the shooters are not very athletic. So I'm wondering, um, perhaps they have this unburned aggression. Would you agree? Well, yes. I mean, one thing that happens uh, these athletes is it's a very strong social network as well. And so I think most of these um, these young shooters have been very isolated, socially isolated. And that is the source of their depression. And these mass shootings, you know, are really just kind of an overblown form of suicide. It's like, I'm depressed. I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to take out as many others as I can because I know I know I'll become famous for that reason. So just to be clear, you're saying that aggression is normal but violence is not normal. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Aggression is uh, a very normal emotion, but violence is uh, deliberately antisocial. And um I think most people, very, very few people, male or female, are naturally violent. Uh, but we all have our aggressive moments, and we need to learn to restrain them if we want to live in civilized society. Are you saying that if we took all the kids when they're teenagers and we put them in good places, if we put them in good programs to teach them how to control their emotions, and help them be less abused, would that make all the kids and the boys in particular normal and nonviolent? Well, there's a lot we can do with adolescents and young adults, I think, to get their brains back on track if they've had challenges early on. Um, I think any kind of uh, program for youth has to be very future-oriented and, you know, just not just clamping down on their current behavior, but developing some hope and, and a future for them to look forward to and a reason to delay gratification and suppress their more selfish behaviors uh, in the interest of a, of a bright future. I think it's children who don't see much of a future ahead of them that um, don't see the need to suppress, you know, their violence or drugs or, or any kind of uh, harmful behavior. Boys tend to uh, act out when they've got issues going on. That's the nature. Now more of Suzanne Kreider's interview with Dr. Victor Lecherva, author of Masculine Wisdom, with ideas about what teachers and other supportive adults can do to help steer young men away from violent paths. Girls tend to be more depressed, withdrawn, so they'll be a C student when really they could be an A student. But the boys are more likely to get themselves suspended or kicked out of school or go see the principal or something like that. I think one of the most important things that teachers can do is to educate themselves 
in terms of uh, ADHD and PTSD. Many young boys in our educational system are actually suffering from PTSD because of what they're experiencing on the home front. One way to understand PTSD is to think about um, allergies. When your body gets a foreign protein in your nose, in your eyes, in your throat, what does it try and do? It tries to dilute that protein to make things better. Over time, that body, your body's res- protective response becomes what, what hassles you, what causes all your symptoms of itchy eyes and runny nose and asthma. So the initial response is good. It was meant to protect. But then over time, with repeated stimulation, your body goes a bit haywire and overreacts. PTSD is similar. People experience traumatic, difficult circumstances that their bodies then react to to try and protect them by making them more alert, to by uh, making them pay more attention in a, in a new environment, et cetera, et cetera. Over time, with that repeated stimulation, actual changes in the brain occur so that that initial protective response becomes a debilitating response. So with kids who are acting out, part of why they're acting out is they're, they're always looking around. Is it safe? What was that noise? They're on hyper alert because of the drunk dad who comes home and they have to really be paying attention to his every moment because they never know when he's going to become violent. So one of the things that teachers can do is to really educate themselves about ADHD, PTSD, the distinctions between them, and do the best they can within their system to realize that the kid who's acting out, particularly in grammar school, is really, that's a cry for help. Okay, I'm a teacher. I have a kid who has PTSD. What do I actually do Well, when he acts out? One of the things that both within the school system and as parents is the whole notion of, of a timeout. And a timeout is about helping you calm down and marshal your own resources so that you can be in a better place. Timeout is not about punishment. So I think, you know, there's been some very interesting work with uh, short-term group resources within schools that that hasn't unfortunately uh, been, it's been validated, but it hasn't been replicated which is often one of the problems that we have. We, people come up with these great ideas. They show that they work, but then we don't replicate them everywhere. And so short-term, six-week, put kids in a group so that they can talk about what's actually going on in their lives reduces their PTSD symptoms and makes them able to be more present in the school situation. Uh, I think being the fair witness is something that every teacher can do. When a kid is acting out and you have a sense of what's going on in the home front, you can be the fair witness. You know what's happening to you right is, isn't right. It isn't fair. It's not your fault. And things are going to get better. Now, when you're managing 25, 30 kids, to have the time and energy to focus that kind of caring, loving attention on one person is a huge challenge. And that's, it's really hard to yeah. be a teacher. It's like yeah. they're not mental health counselors. Exactly. So that's where we come back to uh, who, who can be the positive allies You know, maybe it's the coach who can really help this kid out and not the teacher if the kid is involved in sports or some kind of after-school something. Maybe it's uh, the grandfather or a cousin who's healthy. Uh, Maybe it's getting them into a boys and girls club um, or big brothers, big sisters, something else. 
because all the evidence shows that kids who survive very difficult circumstances growing up, one of the cornerstones of resiliency is that they have access to at least one older caring adult who can show them a different reality than what they're, than the craziness that they're experiencing from what I often call the unholy triad of mental illness, substance abuse, and violence in the home. But one good thing about working young people is that they want to be guided. Again, here's Dr. Joseph Marshall of San Francisco's Omega Boys Club and author of the book Street Soldiers. They really do. They want somebody to come in and tell them, you know, adolescence is a time of confusion anyway. So they're looking for guidance. They're looking for people who genuinely care for no reason at all. And that's, uh, they don't find that. They just don't find people who really care about them. Uh, you know, without judgment. See, the, the tough thing doing this is not to have judgment. Uh, if you have an STD, I'll give you a medical example. When you go into the doctor's office, uh, the, you know, the worst thing that the doctor to do is to shame you for having a disease. Uh, the doctor isn't interested in shaming you. He's interested in treating the infection. Uh, and the only reason he'll ask you about your sexual, you know, lifestyle is so that you won't, you know, he wants to make sure you're not transmitting the disease to anyone else. So it's a very clinical way. It's not a moral way. Uh, one reason that we're successful here is we don't moralize. We're not judgmental. We're trying to, we're trying to help these young people stay alive and free. So we have conversations about the, uh, uh, you know, the way of thinking that we really see is, is, is disease and infected. And so we get them to talk about all these things in a very non-threatening non-judgmental way. And I th that's, that, believe me, that's even tough for parents to do, especially if they haven't done it with themselves. And at what age should the conversations happen? This conversation needs to start as early as you can possibly have it, uh, because this, this programming, and I do call it programming, is, starts as soon as, you know, boys can hear. <laughs> the, the first three worst words that a boy can hear is, be a man. Yeah, and that's the other thing about this. See, you've got, if, if parents start to talk about this, it's going to be hard for them to do because the only way you can talk about something is that you talked about it with yourself first. You pass on what you have inside of you, what you know. So I think it's going to take uh, people uh, a larger conversation that doesn't depend on parents because the parents are guilty of passing on this, this way of thinking. What do the conversations do? gets them to think about why they're doing. Are they, are they being inner-driven or outer-driven? You know, most people do things, <laughs> they don't even know why they're doing the things that they do. They're doing things because of something they see on television, because they want to, they're worried about being teased, they're trying to live up to an ideal. They've never thought about it themselves. The conversations gets them to examine themselves. We're very fragile, and we do things because other people are doing it not because we even want to do them. More from Joseph Marshall, Victor Lecherva, and Lise Elliott when our exploration of ways to raise young boys and steer them away from violence continues on Peace Talks Radio right after this break.
This is Peace Talks Radio, produced by the nonprofit media organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated. We've been producing episodes about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution since 2002, and you can hear all of them on our website, peacetalksradio.com. You can subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter for the latest news about new episodes or timely shows from our archive. Also look on Facebook for the I Want Peace Challenge or connect to it through our website, peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider. With 90% of violent crime in the U.S. committed by males, we thought we'd look upstream from the problem itself, as we often do, and see if there are good ideas about raising boys to steer them away from violence. Our guests include Dr. Joseph Marshall, author of the book Street Soldiers. He's founder and director of the Omega Boys Club, working with youngsters in San Francisco. His work is online at stayaliveandfree.org, stayaliveandfree.org. We're also hearing from Dr. Victor Lecherva, who is the co-founder of the New Mexico Men's Wellness Group, and whose book Masculine Wisdom can be found online at myheartsongs.org. That's myheartsongs.org. And again, here's Suzanne Kreider with more on the brain science of this equation on young boys from Dr. Lise Elliott of the Chicago Medical School. And she's author of the book Pink Brain, Blue Brain, How Small Differences Grow into Troublesome Gaps and What We Can Do About It. So what does brain plasticity have to do with male violence? All children start out sort of naturally selfish and aggressive. They don't really understand other people's needs. They they don't know how to share. Um, And part of what we do when we train children is to develop their sensitivity to other people and suppress this natural aggression. This is a learning process and every time you learn to suppress a behavior, your brain actually changes. The neural circuits are altered. We have inhibitory circuits from our frontal lobe that uh, project to motor areas that that control decision making. And um, as we practice this self-control, those circuits get stronger and stronger. But if we don't practice that self-control, we don't develop the suppression of aggression. Now, on top of that, we have cultural differences for boys and girls. I think you could really argue that boys and girls grow up in two essentially different cultures. We call them different names. We give them different toys and clothes. We, we talk differently to them. And then once children figure out that I'm a boy, I'm a girl, they become very motivated to live up to the, that stereotype. And so boys, in essence, train themselves to be more aggressive. Girls train themselves to be more passive. And, and this is what rolls into these more familiar sex differences in adult brains. You talk about uh, the critical period of affecting kids is birth to puberty for learning. So um, what if you don't keep kids by that age? Well, learning is a continuum, and the earlier you learn a skill, the more solid and um, deeper the learning will be. But puberty is not like a sudden cliff. Uh, kids, their bodies change, but their brains actually are undergoing a very steady transition from birth to adulthood. And really, 
one thing we have learned for sure about developmental neuroscience is that the brain continues de uh, developing all the way until one's 20s. Um, actually, boys finish maturing uh, probably two years later than girls, but we're talking about not at 13 or 14, we're talking at 21, 22, 25 years of age when um, the white matter density of the brain actually reaches its peak and the gray matter uh, has finished what we call its pruning process. So adolescence is a intense learning period and I think studies of the brain have actually made the strongest case for easing up on our juvenile punishment. There's lots of opportunity to um, set a kid back on a good track um, during the adolescent years if we're not too harsh and, and punitive and if they have uh, opportunities to learn positive skills and, you know, a future. Dr. Lise Elliott of the Chicago Medical Center. More now of Suzanne's conversation with Victor Lacherva, author of Masculine Wisdom and MyHeartSongs.org. In terms of violence, what's a bigger problem, firearms or the lack of mental health? Well, I don't know that I would put those two next to each other on the scale. I think there are things that can be done in both arenas to make forward progress. Um, as I said before, if you're, I, I, I'm, I'm a gun owner myself. I'm not anti-gun. I do think that we need somewhat more sane policies in terms of firearm issues. But the reality is that if you're a gun owner, be a responsible gun owner, which means securing your weapons so there's none, no unsupervised access to them by young people. In terms of the mental health system and the, the flaws and the challenges there, um, I think that, you know, it's interesting. In Italian, I've been spending uh, some time in Sicily, which is where all of my family origins are from. And in Italian, uh, the word for parents is i genitori, which means your mother and your father. But there's another word called i parenti, which means everybody else in the family that helps to raise you. So the notion of parent is not mother and father in Italy. The notion of parenti, parents, is everybody else. And I think that part of the issue is always relying on government systems to fix everything has its own set of challenges and disappointments. As a species, we're sort of made back to what, back to the origins of our conversation today about sort of that some of that built-in stuff that's still there. Where we have huge parts of our brain that are designed to interact with a clan of about fifty people, and so part of fixing, if you will, what's wrong with the mental health system is raising the education and awareness level of of everyone. Because then we've got all of this support system that can help move things forward. Uh, so that's one piece to me that, that could be useful. Is, is, in other words, many young people with mental health issues don't get recognized, so then they don't get help at all. It's challenging enough, even when you have a sense of what's going on, to, to find the right combination of therapy and medications that will help to make their lives better. But I wonder if the shooters were really mentally ill. Were they? Really? Well, now we're getting to the core of what mental illness is about. And 
for me, they had some very skewed perceptions of reality. And you could call that, you could, you could label that as mental illness or not mental illness. You could put a label on them. They were depressed. They were alienated. Uh, they had personality disorders. I mean, all of the putting in boxes is an attempt to help to understand what's really happening. But clearly, their behavior is far out of the range of what most of us would consider to be normal and acceptable. But aren't there boys who have that kind of, um, they have a different personality, but they're not violent? Well, I think, again, there's a wide range of tolerance within our culture that we decide on collectively about what's okay and what's not okay. And what they were engaging in, uh, both in, the, in their explorations and in their planning and then in their execution, were way beyond the norm of what most of us would consider okay and healthy. That's Dr. Victor Lecherva. And here's more with Dr. Joseph Marshall, working with young people in San Francisco in his Omega Boys Club, where he says he simply challenges his youngsters with the question, do you want to stay alive and free? Oh, I got a bunch of stories. <laughs> uh, I met a young man uh, in the, uh, the uh, youth authority out here, three counts of arm robbery and uh, attempted murder on a police officer who basically believed, you know, in material values. Uh, he believed in having a bunch of girls. He believed in just a criminal lifestyle. When I met him, he had adopted this whole persona that uh, landed him in jail. He just really thought that was the way you should act uh, as a boy, as a man. You know, we asked him, you know, do you want to stay alive and do you want to stay free? You know, are you happy? Are you happy? And nobody ever approached him like that. Uh, but remember, this was a fixed way of thinking. He believed in it. And it took a long time for that young man to, 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 to change. And we were very patient with him, much like a doctor would be with a, with a, a medical patient, because we, we knew that this was just a programming, a way of thinking that he had held for, you know, his 16 or 17 years of life. And when he was around other people, they reinforced this way of thinking and acting. So he took, you know, two steps forward and one step back. And eventually he began to see what we saw. You know, you could think, think of somebody like Malcolm X who went into prison as, and came out another way because of the guidance and tutelage of somebody he met in the prison to show him the error of his ways. Uh, we do that with young people all the time. And we find out what led him to that lifestyle was the fact that his mother got on drugs when he was a young boy, and he developed all this anger. That anger never got resolved, and he turned that, he turned that anger on himself and on other people. You know, hurting people hurt people. So we had to help him with all of that, you know, all that internalized anger, fear, and pain that he was just now, you know, hurting himself and hurting others. Uh, but it was a process. Uh, we were able to do it, and the young man eventually went to college, graduated, and is a family man. This is something we know that has to be done. We're not afraid to do it. The other half of the equation is helping young men not get infected in the first place. If you think of me as a doctor, and I keep using these medical analogies because that's the way I see myself, preventive medicine is the way to go. So I work with kids in the fourth grade, fifth grade, you know, little boys, because they're, they're pretty sweet, good-natured people. I don't want them to begin to think this way 
in the first place. So I do both prevention and I do work with young men like the one I described earlier. Dr. Joseph Marshall, founder and director of the Omega Boys Club, working with youngsters in San Francisco and taking his prescription for living alive and free all around the world since the 1980s. To sum up from our guests today, Dr. Lisa Elliott says there's little support for an argument that boys are more prone to violence because of brain chemistry or hormones like testosterone, which they have more of than girls. She says most don't become violent, but if they do, it's probably nurture and not nature. She also says there's a difference in aggressive behavior in boys, which she sees as normal and not necessarily a bad thing, and violence. It's up to adults, she says, to draw the line between those two. And our other two guests, Dr. Victor Lecherva and Dr. Joseph Marshall, seem to agree with Dr. Elliott that it's the conditioning from parents, other adults, other boys, social environment, and the media that can overtake some boys' belief systems, telling them that violence is the way to resolve conflicts, to get attention, and to have fun. Dr. Lecherva's approach to changing that is largely to work with adult men to help them learn a different, more compassionate model of what's a successful man, so that it can be offered as a template for young people. Then he reminds parents how important it is for them to get a handful of other trustworthy adults on board to help deliver that message to their kids. And Lecherver challenges all of us to take some responsibility for men to find their own brand of masculine wisdom and spread it in their own circles of influence. Now, Dr. Joseph Marshall agrees that many of the parents of the inner-city youth he works with in San Francisco are part of the problem in that they can only pass on the be-tough-and-fight message to boys because that's all they grew up with. Marshall boils down his solution to a straight-talk formula to his young people. If you want to stay alive and stay out of prison, you should abandon the tough guy's commandments of the street and find another way to respectability through education and empathy with others. To hear the complete conversations with each of our guests, go to our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution dating back to 2002. There you can also sign up for a free podcast and newsletter, order CDs, and help support the series with a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit media organization that produces this program, separate and apart from your public radio station. Visit peacetalksradio.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, too, and check Facebook out for the I Want Peace Challenge and participate any way you can. Additional support from KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves-Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls for Suzanne Kreider. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. (laughs) 